the religious left. Hmm. I'm always a little curious about that moniker and about that label. It seems contrived within the media. It seems like someone came around and said, oh, wait, there's a religious right. What about the religious left? And what about those on that other side? I'd be curious to break some of those things down. And I'm also curious how those connect with politics, television, media, and just the propaganda rhetoric that all of us receive on a day to day. Hmm. My guest this week breaks that and much more down. He had a chance to sit down with Norman Lear. You don't know who that is? Stay tuned. You'll find out. This is Profane Faith. Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith a podcast that engages faith on the margins, faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Hey y'all, what's going on? Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to Profane Faith. This your boy, Dan White Hodge. Yes, um, yes, um, yes, um. Well, we're back another week. And yo, you know what? I received a lot of great fan mail this week uh, from y'all, the listeners who were like, yo, this new format. You're killing me, man. You're killing me. I don't like it. <laughs> but in a good way, in a good way, in a good way, in a good way. It was, you know, um, I always say, you know, would you rather leave? Would you rather have somebody who should have left 30 minutes ago? Or would you have rather have somebody who um, is like, oh, man, give me more. Give me more. Give me more. Um, and that's kind of where, uh, you know, <laughs> I was what I was trying to do. Uh, y'all was really vocal about, you know, Andre. Um, I'm getting again, getting my words all mixed up. Uh, but about Brother Andre last week, and uh, you know, just really wanted to hear his perspective. I told you that was that was what a way to open up season four, right? Oh my gosh. Um, so thank you for the feedback and. Oftentimes, you know, the way I get connected through people um, is a lot of times I just reach out to folks and see if they respond. But oftentimes I get hooked up through folks, uh, you know, emailing me and saying, hey, have you done this? And so I'm cooking up some really good interviews right now. And most of those are because people have said, hey, do you know this person? Do you know that person? Do you know this person? So, um, I, yeah, I, I thank you for that. So keep them coming. Keep the folks coming. Keep people coming. Keep, uh, you know, keep the keep the goodness coming this way it helps benefit us all and particularly with a show like this and just the platform really being able to discuss all the intersectionalities engaged with faith and um and religion so um i'm looking forward to that so yeah bring it bring it bring it bring it um so yes last couple weeks have been great um, amazing downloads and uh and listenership we were up about 70 percent um well over you know 2200 streams um and again for us that's that's 
big <laughs> in, a, in a small production here. And again, it's just me doing all the production here. I, I don't have a, a team. I, I always take a team. And if you're out there and you want to get involved in this and you want to um, engage with podcasting or particularly the style of media, please reach out to a brother. I'll always take help. Don't get me wrong. I will always take help. Um, but um, it's just me. And so, you know, that that listen, listenership and download streams, that's huge. So keep it coming. Keep spreading the word. If this is your first time to Profane Faith, and because I get it, this is on demand. And oftentimes, you know, folks are, this is they're just their first experience. And so that's that's okay. Come on with it. Come on, break it down. And uh, go check out some previous episodes. Uh, we're on all the platforms. I don't know what platform you're listening on. Listen to me right now. But um go back and check previous episodes maybe somebody downloaded it and forwarded you this this uh you know this little mp3 so go on check it out whitehodgepodcast.com uh you know there's material there it's whitehodge.com that's my own personal website there's material there as well and so um i'm just i'm excited to be connected with new people and particularly furthering this conversation of faith race, race, gender, um, in this particular era that we're in. Um, that conversation continues this week, this week, uh, I get a bring a, get to bring a good friend of mine on. And now I'm going to be honest and I'm going to say, get your pens and notepads and all that stuff out, get it ready because this brother is, is deep. This is another one of my great AAR friends, American Academy of Religion. Uh, we met years back and um, he's just a great thinker. Uh, he has a new book coming out, which I'll, I'll talk about here in a second. But more importantly, just the way he thinks through politics and the way he thinks through media, the way he thinks through race and all that um, is amazing. So I wanted to get him on the show. We go in, as you can tell by the total runtime of this episode. So I'm not going to keep you long. I want to hop right into this interview. Um, but I did want to kind of break down just who Benji Rolski is. Uh, he received his PhD from Drew University here in uh, in the U.S. in American Religious Studies. His work has appeared in a variety of academic and popular venues, including Method and Theory and the Study of Religion and the Journal of American Academy of Religion, uh, as well as the Christian Century. Um, he is, uh, his research and teaching interests include religion and politics, the study of popular culture and critical theory, Rolski's first monograph, this one, this book that we're going to be talking about, The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, television, and popular culture in the 1970s and beyond is his forthcoming uh, with Columbia University Press. I'm going to put the links for the book uh, in the show notes. Show notes, of course, are a White Hodge podcast. Uh, Rolski was born in Santa Monica, California. He's a California native, okay? Yet uh, he spent most of his formative years in Whitefish, Montana. Uh, he attended the Arizona State University as an undergraduate, eventually finished his education with a PhD again from Drew University. Um, he's an amazing brother. He uh, There are times I'm just like, all right, Benji, run, run that back by me again, because that was a little too deep for a brother. So again, I encourage you, you know, part of what I've wanted to do with this show as well is to have folks from all types of walks of life in different areas. And so sometimes I've heard people say, man, I've, I feel like I'm getting preached to and that's a, in, a, in a good way, not in a negative way, but I feel like this was a great sermon. Other times people say, man, that was a great conversation. And yet other times people walk away and say, man, I felt like I really learned something. I was taken to school. And so I'm hoping that's what this episode will be. Uh, Benji breaks down his new book. He talks a little bit about the uh, religious left and kind of the some of the, the errancies of, of, of having that particular designation and label uh, for this particular group. And in, 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 in reality, what that looks like in real time in this era, I think this is a um, timely conversation, especially as we're thinking about um, 
um, all the debates. And for the record, I don't watch debates um, just because I think they're dumb. <laughs> I get nothing about, you know, how somebody is supposed to solve the crisis of Flint's water problem in 45 seconds. Tell me in 90 seconds how you plan to deal with the problem of police brutality. You know, it's like it, it, they're just, yeah, it's crap. But anyways, that's for another podcast. But anyways, <laughs> Benji gets into it. He starts breaking some stuff down uh, as always. And, um, you know, it's just again, it's just a great way to kind of begin to look at how we treat a moniker like religious left in this day and age and what that might look like. Um, he's, he's going to go deep. So again, take your time. Maybe you want to break this down to two episodes, however you want to do. I ain't your mammy or pappy. You do what you want to do, man. You just sit and, sit and listen to this the whole time. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but he, he, he is an amazing, uh, thinker. And that's another reason why I wanted to bring him on. And plus he's just a, a great all around type of guy. So again, the, the book is the rise and fall of the religious left politics, television, and popular culture in the 1970s and beyond getting ready to drop here in November. So check out this conversation with Benji and I. Um, again, man, just welcome to profane faith. And, uh, man, why don't you, uh, why don't you start by telling folks, cause I have a wide group of listeners sure. that, uh, listen. And, uh, I've brought a lot of my great connections, uh, from AAR here. Cause that was, I believe that's how we met. Yes. Yeah, probably. Probably racial and ethnic minority in 2007. I yeah. can almost probably remember to the spot. Almost. <laughs> Hear that. And then, you know, and then our colleagues, Monica and Chris, they yes. meet each other there and then they get married literally later or Chris proposes later. in the very room that they met. That it's beautiful. is beautiful. I know. I know. That was that was something else, man. That, beautiful. That was, <laughs> although I you knew know? something was up in. I, I didn't. <laughs> you did. Oh, okay. I no. knew something was up in when they when we had AR in Chicago and they were uh, like, "Oh, we were up last night talking theory." And I was like, mm, "Talking uh, theory." Uh, huh? Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. Talking theory. That's <laughs> the highfalutin theory. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> So what got you into this, man? What, uh, you know, I've been reading some of your stuff and, you know, yeah. you're a religious scholar and, you know, of, of, of religious history, man. But what got you here, man? What, how, what, what happened from birth to now? <laughs> well, a lot. <laughs> a lot. Let's see. So, yeah, I mean, born in Southern California. Um, and then my family kind of moves around Washington State. I basically grew up in Montana, of all places, which is kind of random, but I really cherish it. And then I went to high school and college in Arizona. And that's kind of where I started thinking about academia or just academics. I had a high school teacher who put me in the same sentence as Princeton, you know, um, so that was the first time that ever happened. So I, that kind of stayed with me and went up off to the Honors College at Arizona State and did what I needed to do there. And and then was really lucky to meet someone um, in Claremont, um, Gaston Espinosa, who's still a mentor of mine. And I've really just kind of been trying to live out everything that he kind of instilled in some capacity. And I just have a sort of passion for all of this. And he got me some early indexing work with his work on the religion and the presidency and religion in Mexican American spirituality. Uh, some of the edited works, he has a wonderful work on William Seymour and Pentecostalism. Half of it's secondary, the other half is primary, really an indispensable text for those in the study of sort of Pentecostalism globally hmm. and kind of in North America. Hmm. Um, so I had experience doing that. So he gave me some opportunities and, encouraged me to go off to Yale. And so I did. And I met a number of wonderful colleagues there, you know, I was lucky enough to take classes with Randall Balmer and, and, um, Man. Tisa Wenger, who I'd met at, at ASU. And she kind of followed me to, or I followed her, who knows, to um, Yale and, and she's there now and tenured, which is wonderful. And so she's been kind of along for the journey and Clarence Hardy. I just, 
I took Baldwin and religion and civil rights from him. I'm very, very, will always remember that. I think Hardy is a very underestimated kind of scholar of religion and, and slept on perhaps to use that kind of terminology. He has a wonderful book on Baldwin and sort of holiness Pentecostal uh, histories. And he's a Pentecostal himself. So it was always just sort of this wonderful kind of experience in using all of those things that I could, the Harry Stouts and Catherine Loftons and John Butler's. And, you know, I just took it all in and go off to Drew and really just pursue what I, um, I guess, thought best, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess, really at the time. Um, I don't know if I necessarily would have done things maybe differently, um, but I certainly came out of, you know, the school of writing on charismatic figures like, like Oprah, you know, expanding the horizons of the category of religion. Um, so I had really, you know, I read um, the well-known Oprah text in word form, word document form. Um, so that was, and I didn't really get it at the time. It took me a little while to sort of figure it out. Uh, but once I got to Drew, I sort of settled down. And and once I sort of heard the origins of people for the American way, it just kind of clicked. Okay, so Norman was going up against any number of conservative evangelicals, fundamentalists, Pentecostals on the radio, the electronic church, all that kind of stuff. And once that clicked, mm -hmm. I thought, okay, well, I might have an in here you know, when it comes to talking about this thing called American religious liberalism or, uh, pro or American progressivism or liberal politics, progressive politics, however you want to kind of couch it. And um, I just have a passion, you know, for TV and popular culture. And I was able to sort of wed all of those things together uh, in a way that I sort of took advantage of some new work in the field that was kind of pushing the field a little bit in this way and that way. At least my field is, as far as American religious history has come as compared to something like American religious studies, maybe a little bit more theoretical. We can maybe talk about Oprah as a sort of indicator, a stand-in for late 20th century, uh, early 21st century kind of religiosity and spirituality at the intersection, as well as consumption. Yes. So that's where I really got a lot of that. And then my exams, you know, I made the very, I guess what I wanted to do. So I had to do up to 1865 afterwards, but then I was very purposeful and I did an exam on um, the Frankfurt School and critical theory and Adorno and all those guys, and then the sociological literature on the culture wars. Uh, because I knew that I wanted to be interdisciplinary. Um, I knew I wanted to employ those sort of methods and ideas in my own work. And that's kind of what I'm getting at a little bit with the rise and the fall when it comes to the book. Um, there's certainly a rise that we can talk about, but I also think it's productive and helpful to kind of talk about the falling off, perhaps. Uh, why has it been that Democrats have really only succeeded when they've been from the South, you know, since someone like Jimmy Carter or someone like Lyndon Johnson? Obviously, Barack Obama was very successful. But at the same time, that's kind of a limitation. And the second book I'm kind of thinking about is going into some more conservative stuff. But as far as, you know, how I got here, like the hip hop stuff you and I talk about all the time. I mean, that's just that's just a passion I have. And I guess luckily, if a scholar of a religion, I'm able to employ my the sort of skills and tools and methods that I've learned and mm -hmm. and be able to do that with almost anything. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, for example, like two days ago, I was invited by a. Um, kind of like an academic slash journalistic publication, a pretty big one, uh, to write about the life of uh, Mr. Rogers, mm. you know, because that's kind of timely. It's interesting. The movie's coming out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, just coming from something at Monmouth, too, and a cultural center just opened up. Uh, Thomas, I want to say like Thomas Fortune, some African-American sort of cultural figure that's just opened up in Red Bank and been told that the archives are open for this person and no one's really delved into the spirituality per se. Um, so, I, you know, who knows? I might get into that a little bit. Uh, but I just, like you said, I kind of dabble. 
certainly had a passion for hip hop. I mean, my car is kind of like a mobile uh, lab in some capacity. <laughs> I mean, I try out different things in the car and, you know, not unlike the good doctor from Southern California, I really tinker and and really consider you know, different art for or different songs, I suppose. And, you know, talking to Monica and Chris and all the people that we've done over the years, it's just been, it's just been wonderful. So I guess hard work, I suppose, um, just training in, um, I guess, particular fields that allow me to survey and kind of pick up objects. And part of that was the education at Yale and being able to take a moment and write about Beats headphones when they first came out. Okay. That was one of the cooler experiences that I was able to do was, you know, often encourage this kind of vignette writing, you know, the ritualistic aspects of filming yourself for YouTube and then filming yourself opening this package, yeah. the kind of pageantry to it. So, you know, it was very much in the classroom I learned those things. And then I've just really kind of taken off, I suppose, or tried to do as much as I can with all of that. And you know, I'm talking to you today and, you know, so far so good. So we'll see. <laughs> I heard that, man. Well, I heard that. Well, let me, I mean, yeah, you talked a little bit about Oprah and, you know, I, uh, it's, it's interesting you brought that up because I was looking at a post of hers on Twitter. Um, uh -huh. Oh yeah, her book tour or something. Yeah, or something. yeah, yeah, yeah. something Wellness like that. Tour. I saw it pop up on my feed and I was like, you know what, yeah. I'm just going to click on this because I want to look at the comments because I, I just need a good laugh. And, That's um, right. It was just interesting just to see just, you know, the amount of folks that, you know, were just like, oh, she's the evil. She's the devil. So it's, wow. I was, it's interesting just to just to see that. Now, granted, that's anecdotal. What what did you find on particularly um, Oprah? What, what, what was all that about? Well, I mean, as far as how I kind of take what someone maybe like Lofton did with her work is that, I mean, Oprah is nothing if not, at least for Lofton at the time, it was sort of an indication of the confluence of sort of consumption, Christianity, new thought, spirituality, mindfulness, those sorts of things. I mean, she's nothing if not sort of a self-producing commodity okay. in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, she's kind of, she's perfected the idea of kind of selling yourself in some capacity. Uh, and so what she did was not unlike, I guess, what I did a little bit when it comes to the rise and fall or someone like Lear is that I kind of took I opened up his catalog not unlike opening up Oprah's catalog and let's take a look at her magazine let's take a look at her missionary work let's take a look at her television program so you know as a historian I'm certainly interested in change over time but then at the same time I think there's just an important aspect when it comes to change within time if that makes any sense so take a chunk out of a moment and give us a cross-section of that period of time. So for me, it was either Norman or for someone like Professor Lofton, it would be someone like Oprah. And so the argument is that you, we kind of learn about religion in America in some capacity by looking at her in the same way that we kind of learn something about religion in America by looking at someone like Norman Lear and sitcoms and primetime television and nonprofit organizing and all the things that kind of took off, think tanks that took off in the late 70s, early 80s. So for me, Using someone like Oprah, I, I tether her to um, some work that I use in the classroom on celebrity okay. and then on the consuming of the celebrity so that what happens when the celebrity falls? You know, we certainly bring up the celebrity. Is the mm. celebrity born or is the celebrity made? Mm. Is there some sort of transaction that happens there, some sort of sacrificial scapegoating that takes place? And that's really one of the powerful things that you know, Professor Lofton continues to offer is that is those sorts of analyses of either celebrity or consumption. I mean, it's kind of in the in the air today as far as people looking at corporations and religion and business, Christianity and business. Um, I think it's that's kind of taking off uh, sort of as it were, at least in 
sort of my fields and stuff. But as yeah, I mean, as far as Oprah, uh, I didn't really understand it until later. But to me, it's really kind of an Adornian reading on Oprah's sort of media mm, empire. Okay. If I can go so far as to say that, Come that on. sort of cuts through a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's not necessarily going to be recognized as a as a work of historical, you know, kind of change over time, causation, that kind of thing. So, you know, her dissertation was very much about different sorts of things, and that's kind of. Um, a reflection of the critical theory tradition. It's not as if you, you know, they speak of constellations of mm. things. You don't necessarily have to be a, you know, there needs to be a through line, you know, for sure with your work. But at the same time, not everything has to be kind of exactly related or, you know, when people, I tell people about the book, they're like religious left. What on earth is that? Well, what is that? I've never heard of that. So, you know, I really like that too, because it's like, all right, well, great. Well, you know, let me, let me kind of tell you about it. Uh, but when it comes to, yeah, she's kind of a stand-in, or at least that's the argument. She's a stand-in representative of a certain type of practice, a certain type of sort of engagement with the economy around us and how people continue to find identity through consumption. And Lofton, or I mean Oprah, kind of is one of the, I guess, preeminent people who's kind of perfected something like that, in addition to all the charismatic preachers and evangelists and all these other things um, over the course of sort of American religious history. But for me, um, I guess I took the kind of, structure apparatus of, of how to conduct something like that. And mm -hmm. I ran with it and sort of applied it to someone within liberal progressive circles and understanding politics a little bit better. Man, see, that this is the type of stuff that I love. This is the type of stuff that I'm trying to help some of my undergrads understand mm. and, you know, and, and engage with that. Let me even just back up a moment. What makes, because there's, the, there's the argument sometimes, and I see this every now and then in the Chronicle for Higher Ed, uh, mm -hmm. that, you know, religion and some of the humanities and philosophies, it's like, you know, it's kind of a dead major. <laughs> like, what, what are you going to do with yeah. that? And and why religion? What is in, mm -hmm. and, and I, you know, you can go a thousand different ways with that, but I'd be curious, especially your take on why religion in, in, in this particular era, uh, uh, even after the 20th 16 election. Yeah, so why religion as in even, right, so enrollments are kind of off. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I just I just was having these conversations, I guess. Um, well, it's as important as it's ever been. I mean, I think we're being told that it's not. Um, obviously, universities are having kind of issues. My own university in some capacity is kind of trying to figure out what to do with a religion major, religion minor. It's in a history and anthropology department. I mean, I, I guess not just because I'm the academic of religion or a scholar of religion, but I suppose it's it's an indispensable still to understanding our public life. Uh, I mean, if you want to abstract it out, not necessarily say Christianity, Judaism, Islam, as far as religion having some institutional referent, I mean, if anything, I think the word itself is becoming even more powerful and more useful and more important to study just because of people like, say, I know it came out a little while ago, but, you know, Tisa Wenger's book, We Have a Religion. Mm. I mean, that helps us understand how religion can be the word, the concept can be used as a form of leverage, as a form of state regulated, a state regulated idea that you then kind of respond to these indigenous peoples who maybe didn't appear to have a quote unquote religion at first. Yeah. But then you say something like we do. So then what results in that is federal protection, the hmm. First Amendment, you know, First Amendment rights. Yeah. So to me, it's so right. The 2016 election and and religion. I mean, uh, there was all the stuff, at least at first, that, you know, Trump is courting all these people. He's meeting with all these evangelicals. He's he's trying to he's trying to cater. He's trying to bring them on board. I mean, I still think we do have to study, uh, you know, something like that, even though I'd say in the history of, say, conservatism or the conservative party's usually been you know, some sort of pastor, some sort of preacher has been out in front. 
But now we've gotten to the point where, and there, there's always been sort of business money or corporate money to a certain extent, but now we have that person out in front of everyone. So instead of the pastor, we have the businessman. But I think we still mm. need to attend to questions of religion or interdisciplinarity or whatever, because I think to understand Trump and the Trump phenomenon, you really have to understand just the kind of environment that he occupies or the environment that he's kind of using to further his own sort of causes. Uh, and so to me, like I remember writing a little bit of something before the election and, you know, there was a sentence, something like, you know, academics con convincing ourselves of that the inevitable is not going to happen, you know, yeah. in the sense yeah. that, you know, it was such a surprise. Um, so I think if, I mean, if anything, things are amping up, they're amplifying, intensifying, uh, and there's even more of a need, uh, at least the skills of the scholar of religion to be as important as ever. And so that's why I'm trying to kind of explore this fine line between the sort of formal traditional academic writing and the public intellectual work that a lot of people are kind of getting into or trying to. Uh, and I've been sort of pushed recently to think about, well, how are we going to adjudicate a lot of this? You know, how are we going to adjudicate this kind of public work, this blog work, this website work, this kind of social media work? How are we going to do a lot of that? Uh, when for many, it's kind of the more traditional scholarship that's going to get you someplace. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the times themselves lend themselves for us to kind of push a little bit more just because there's so much in the air in some capacity, despite the kind of lack of, like, yeah, as you're saying, and I guess just based on enrollments, I mean, I guess despite all of that. Uh, but what I'm, what I'm trying to do is sort of bring attention to the sort of larger overarching questions that still sort of occupy us today, just the same sorts of questions, religion and politics, how have the parties related to one another, how they use this thing called religion. What on earth is this thing called the religious left? Can Democrats actually speak in a language that's going to resonate with people in a way that hasn't resonated before? You know, I think P Mayor Pete's trying to do something like that. The climate discussion they had the other night mm -hmm. on CNN or MSNBC, he was really trying to talk about a stewardship, you know, some sort of different view or vision, you know, as opposed to using material for whatever reasons that you want to. Um, so I guess as far as a reason to continue to do so, I think it's as important as ever, even though maybe the numbers wouldn't necessarily suggest that. Uh, but to me, yeah, it's it's never too far away from any kind of public discussion about really anything. Man. Well, I mean, man, I'm so with you. And, and I asked that question specifically uh, just to kind of bring some illumination um, you know, to the work that you do, that we do, that we all do, because mm -hmm. I think oftentimes people think, oh, religious scholars. So you must be this, mm -hmm. you know, fill in the blank of whatever religion and, uh, mm -hmm. and component. And so that's I mean, that kind of that's a good bridge way, you know, segue into. Yeah, the religious left. There's there's folks like, for example, a lot of the, you know, ethnic minority ex-evangelical mm -hmm. folks who are like, man, quit trying to make the, you know, the religious left happen and whatnot. What how do you mm. break this down? How do you begin to engage with this conversation um, as it mm -hmm. pertains to, because I will say this about the right, they tend to galvanize around, you know, mm -hmm. hot button issues. Yeah, sure, they disagree on certain things, but when it comes to abortion, same-sex mm -hmm. marriage, you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying, gun laws. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, just like what, what, what how, how have you in, been engaging in, in nuancing some of that with, you know, with the religious left? And this obviously gets into your book. Yeah, no, wonderful question. I mean, a lot of this comes down to the quote unquote social issue. Now, people are going to have different opinions about this. I just got some book the other day, The Long Southern Strategy. 
And I think they have a chapter in the back of the book, something like the myth of the social conservative, okay. the myth of the the myth of the social issue. So if I were to say anything, and this might be somewhat bold, but people kind of realize this at the same time, is that the 1960s, obviously what took place, civil rights, enfranchisement, civil rights acts, all these sorts of things, wonderful, amazing, much needed. Uh, but what's lost against a lot of that is someone named Barry Goldwater, who was kind of doing something very different out in Arizona in the early 1960s. And so part of this is that when you have, you have these two things kind of happening at the same time. There hasn't been enough attention to Goldwater, although it's happening. You're kind of seeing in the literature, people are coming around to conservatism to a certain extent. That's kind of what the next step is going to be about. Okay. But to me, we have to kind of start with something called the new breed of kind of pastor and preacher who's now going to take his congregations out into the street. Or at least that was the idea. Mm -hmm. But for a lot of people, you ended up leaving your congregations in the pews because oftentimes I think the person at front was maybe a little bit educated more differently, perhaps socialized a little bit differently. So that when people look at this time period, you see this kind of falling away of mainline traditions and ascendance of charismatic traditions. Okay. So that's kind of going on at the same time. Now, when you're talking about the hot button issue, I would argue that something like civil rights is one of our earliest hot button issues. Come on. I think during the civil rights movement, something was invented like that. Obviously, I was on behalf of enfranchisement, arguably something like social justice, which is something else we could talk about. And on behalf of a nation that was looking to make up for perhaps some of the things that it had done, people weren't literally citizens. So there were a number of things to address. But I think what happens is you lay out that blueprint, you lay out the parameters for how to make something like the social issue possible. And you have those on the other side who are very careful, who watch everything, who bring in professional marketers, advertisers, business people, and pick up, okay, well, we're much more conversant in how to actually pitch things to people, which is not an unimportant thing to think about in politics, obviously. I think a lot of the left has assumed the validity of their arguments without taking the next step in persuading people of those arguments. So yes, the biblical text does speak to the migrant, the lost, the abandoned, those who need assistance and help in some capacity. But you gotta make that case to the American people. There's nothing obvious about any of that, even though we like to think that's the case as academics and scholars of religion and good good progressive people. How could people <laughs> not see that message in the biblical yeah, text? Yeah, yeah. Well, guess what? People on the other side have learned the art of persuasion because they've had, and I'm, you know, I'll defend this, they've had to work harder to a certain extent than a lot of people in liberal progressive circles. Okay. Norman Lear could use the airwaves to his benefit. He could keep people like Jerry Falwell off if he wanted to. Not unlike when Coughlin is speaking in the 20s and 30s and the FCC is getting off the ground. A lot of the regulations that were invented at the time were designed were designed to keep people like Coughlin Coughlin off. Obviously, for obvious reasons, he's an anti-Semitic person. He's sowing sort of chaos and everything at the time, so it was much needed. But what I would say is <coughs> that civil rights and reducing the Christian tradition to a certain extent down to enfranchising and down to something like civil rights laid the blueprint for those who wanted, you know, for those with ears to hear kind of a thing, if they could then reappropriate that for their own purposes, perhaps in the name of the unborn, hmm. if we go that far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is exactly what they've done to a certain extent. 
which is why I kind of want to get into that with some of this next work. So to me, the social issue is the thing that has certainly catalyzed and certainly made things a lot more volatile because like you're saying, a lot of these things are quote unquote hot button. Part of the strategy at the time to get people going, to get people off their couches and to really, when we talk about this rise of the Christian right or whatever, to a certain extent, if we actually contextualize it, a lot of people had to work very hard to make that happen. I think the rise only makes sense if you speak about it from an academic perspective, where you kind of already assume that conservatives are destined for the dustbin of history anyway. Just look at someone like Archie Bunker. So this idea of being surprised, I think, is something that the Academy has to reckon with at some point. And I don't think it might be a little ways off before they actually reckon with it. I think my book is going to start pushing at that with the fall. The falling away is that there's been assumption that cultural influence is more important than political victory and political influence. We have books that say, you know, liberals win the culture wars, but they lose elections. I do not Mm. know who would Mm. sign up for that today. That seems like one of the most ludicrous arguments that you could possibly make. But that's just me from my kind of lowly kind of position and all of this to a certain extent. So to me, the social issue has a funny kind of history to it. To me, it kind of starts with foregrounding civil rights. But there's no reason why you can't foreground something else as a social issue. Why isn't um, abortion a social issue? It certainly is. Gun rights, gay marriage, all these other things. Very much social issue. Obviously, we talk about GDP. We talk about you know, domestic policy, foreign policy, but at the same time, not really. So a lot of people write about how kind of politics themselves and the discourse around it began to shift to more social issues. And that was kind of purposeful, I would say, at least from the right. It's an attempt to recalibrate politics so that we can just talk about abrasive, controversial things and kind of take away the power that the left may have had in the name of social social justice and civil rights Hmm. and now employ that on behalf of our conservative interests, even though the conservative take has been to basically dismantle the federal government. I mean, if anything needs to be studied, it's that type of process. The idea that you can basically rail on the very institution that you are running for. Yeah, yeah. That type of formula, yeah, that formula still has to be really understood and kind of analyzed. But to, you know, just to answer the quick question, it kind of starts in the 60s and then intelligent people reappropriate it for completely different reasons and completely different interests. And I think they were still trying, we're still living in that world in many ways, in the aftermath and the kind of wake, the and the kind of collateral damage. I mean, how did we, how did we go from <laughs> Martin Luther King to Jerry Falwell as being the kind of image or symbol of public religiosity or religion in public? How did that happen? There was nothing necessarily natural about any of that. We get the Chicago Declaration for Evangelical or Social Concern in the early 1970s. Nothing said, nothing was obvious at the time that the country was going to be was going to be headed in the opposite direction. I mean, they were working on that way before and way before any of this started to happen. But the story is, well, we end up getting someone like Ronald Reagan. So how did that happen? And part of it had to do with something like the social issue and recalibrating all of American politics, according to this thing kind of called the social issue. And that's what I want to get into a little bit with the second book. Uh, But that's what I would say, you know, just simply is that ironically, civil rights gave a number of people a blueprint or uh, sort of focusing how to take a tradition and kind of reduce it down to this thing. When Mm. you do that, you kind of open the door for reducing it down to other things. 
you know, not just civil yeah. rights, but maybe the unborn, maybe something about gay marriage. So that's how I would kind of, you know, that's how I would get to it. So this is, man, brother, this is all fascinating. This is why I've always respected your work. So let, let me, um, let's ask then, I want to ask you then about Norman Lear because I, I've, I've found him very fascinating mm -hmm. and you were really the first to kind of get me plugged into like, you know, what yeah. he was doing and how he was breaking stuff down and, um, and whatnot. But I would love for you to kind of break down like, one, well, who is Norman Lear? I'm sure people are, you know, some people are just yeah. like, oh man, who is that? But then what was that cultural influence? I saw in one of the writings and the links that you sent me, uh, you know, you talked yeah. about just his cultural influence and just like, and, and you mm -hmm. know, and what he did and like, how does he fit into to, to this, particularly in the book that you're writing that's getting ready to, to drop? Yeah, that's right. So I certainly wasn't alive in the 70s, but for whatever reason, I was just kind of raised on 70s television. So um, I'd like to write a study in the future where I kind of compare how TV kind of portrays friends and sort of friendship. Because I think, you know, with Seinfeld, no one cares about anyone, but you go back in the 70s and people actually kind of cared about each other. It was kind of funny. <laughs> you know, Alex and Taxi, you know, Alex would help people. Hawkeye and MASH, he would help someone if they needed it. And I think Mary would help people too, and Mary Tyler Moore. So Lear really comes out of this moment. He looks at the 60s and he says, Geez, we have things like the Rifleman, we have Mr. Ed, we have Bewitched, we have all these sorts of, we have, um, gosh, what I can't, uh, so, um, let's see, uh, Hill, um, Beverly Hillbillies, all these yeah. sorts of shows. So he kind of looks out at the world and not maybe correctly, he kind of says, well, this isn't really about anything. Uh, so he kind of looks out and he sees a bit of a wasteland, which is actually something that a high powered CEO says in the 1960s, I think, or 50s, I can't remember. That TV is a vast wasteland. Hmm. Um, and so he flies missions in World War II. He grew up in New Haven. He grew up listening, or Hartford and New Haven. He heard about the quotas directed at Jewish people at Yale. He heard Coughlin on the radio. He used to listen to the Crystal Radio with his dad, um, boxing matches, uh, FDR, fireside chats. So Lear was formed or shaped in this kind of depression era, New Deal sensibility of the government can actually be a decent thing. It can actually kind of help in some capacity. Um, so he goes off to war, he comes back, he starts working with um, Martin and Lewis actually, which is pretty cool. Um, he's on their show for a little bit. He starts doing some movies and then he forms a production company with Bud Yorkin, uh, Tandem Productions, he's doing movies. And then he finds a British television show, um, Till Death Do Us Part, I think, or I have to look back at it, but Lear basically invented the whole American adaptation of British television. I mean, I might have to double check that to be to be absolutely sure, but the show that became All in the Family and the show that became Sanford and Son, both of those were English television shows that Lear mm -hmm. saw and adapted to American audiences. Uh, now, that transition we can talk about because all, at least the show over in Britain, very class-based, you know, very class-conscious, conscious. We talk about American primetime television. You don't really see class anywhere. I mean, I think the last time we saw anything working class was what, Roseanne? Maybe yeah. not the most recent iteration, but the actual original yeah, the Roseanne, original. which yeah. I think is very valuable. And I think we need more of that because I think in some capacity, you know, when we get to something like All in the Family, which Norman, you know, is best known for, but he also did things like Maude and the Jeffersons and, and um, Good Times and some others that I'm forgetting. Um, but he's kind of known for making television relevant. So his TV show gets reaches the airwaves after going through any number of networks because it was somewhat controversial. You don't put a bigot on TV for no reason. Uh, so he had to go through any number of kind of hoops. So his show 
broaches the channel or listing, I suppose, when MASH and Mary also come on at the same time. Those shows are commenting on things in real time. They're taking headlines from newspapers. They're taking headlines from journals. And Lear's even doing episodes on black, on hypertension in the black community. He even did episodes on that. And it resulted in people going out and getting checked. So he was mm. all about the immediacy, the kind of relevancy of subjecting sitcom and TV and entertainment to a larger didactic vision as he understood it. So you don't put Archie on TV because you agree with the bigot, but you put Archie on TV because you hope that putting the bigot in front of people is going to encourage them to think about their own behavior, their own thoughts, and their own assumptions about either people of color or white people or whoever. So there's something to unpack about that. But if people were, if people noticed ABC and Jimmy Kimmel recently put on an episode of All in the Family and the Jeffersons, and they got you know new people to play the roles. <laughs> I think Woody Harrelson played Archie. I think Marissa Tomei played um, Edith. And so from what I've heard, it was it was really good. And I wrote a short piece um, because it's not as simple as always, I guess, or it's never as simple as one thinks. And so I wrote this piece where you kind of are wrestling with the ambivalence of the legacy of the show. And so I pitched it to CNN Opinion and they and they liked it and and put it up. And and I wrote it was the return of Archie Bunker. You know, for most people, when they think that that's a bad thing. You know, that means conservatism, that means bigotry, it means the president for many people. But if you ask Norman, Norman says, you know, this programming is in the interest of the human condition. It's a reflection of the human condition. Mm. How on earth are you supposed to adjudicate all of that? I mean, who's right? Who's wrong? I mean, <laughs> I think we forget the fact that when All the Family was on, it created a lot of angst and anxiety, so much so yeah. that studies were done to measure whether people were getting more racist not mm. race, less racist, but I'm trying to unpack the idea of a possible level of kind of condescension and the fact that, okay, we're putting Archie in front of TV, but what makes you think you can do that? Like what makes you think you can actually put someone like that in front of the American people and think that you can tell them what to do or tell them what to think or tell them how to think? I mean, if anything, that might sound familiar of kind of sort of academic stuff just in general. You know, we don't teach necessarily people what to think, how to think. Yeah. I, I kind of wonder sometimes, you know, at the same time. So Norman is known primarily for his work in TV. And I was lucky enough, obviously, to you know be able to interview him and to talk to him and share some of the his own publications that he's written that he totally forgot about, which was fun. Um, so he's primarily known for his work in the 70s, but he's 97 years old. Wow. Netflix, yeah. And he's moving, like I saw him at 95, and he was, you know, or 94, like he's fine, he's moving around. He actually gave me a hard time for not knowing what Hamilton was. <laughs> um, to be honest, actually, you would appreciate this. So he didn't, I didn't know what it was. And he's all like, what you, you do hip hop or whatever. And you don't know what Hamilton is. I ought to punch you or something. <laughs> uh, and then guess what? About a week or so later, yeah. he bought me a ticket Get out to go see it. And so wow. I had this orchestra seat and you know, it just was, it was surreal. Wow. Uh, so I'm in touch with the Norman Lear center at USC. You know, we'll see if Anything comes of it. They're very quantitative. Okay. Um, but, you know, we'll see what comes of it. I've been in touch with them. So he's a cultural icon, you know, cultural figure of a certain generation, um, certainly just as hip as always, but still going at the Koch brothers and various forms of discrimination and conservatism. But he also founded People for the American Way. And People for the American Way is nothing if not an interfaith organization. The original, some of the original founders, classic Protestant Catholic Jew sensibility information. So in many ways, he's kind of a reflection of that mid-century, say, you know, World War II, we'll have a, a rabbi and a priest and a 
pastor go around and give impassioned speeches, you know, over against the Nazis and, and that kind of thing. So he brings a little of that with him, you know, from another time, not only from the New Deal time and the Depression time, but I mean, he's seen a lot of history, you know, mm. he's like 97 years old. So he's bringing all these different concepts and understandings of religion and spirituality. And, and you know, for him, <laughs> he purchased Robert Frost's estate years and years ago. And ever since the early 1980s, he's been, I don't know if he does it anymore, but he's been organizing pilgrimages to that home. And he invites the intelligentsia of the intelligentsia to hang out with him. And for the most part, that intelligence has been people like Martin Marty, um, people like, uh, gosh, I can't remember, the, the Trinity that I kind of focus in on, mm-hmm. Norman Lear, Martin Marty, Bill Moyers. Okay. They all knew each other. Marty's retirement party, M- Lear emceed it. Moyers gave this impassioned talk on behalf of Marty. So what, I, what people, scholars have done to the right, the different networks, you know, the grassroots organizing that red blood to this or that, I kind of wanted to do that for the other side. And Lear is obviously very much a certain strata of society. You know, we're not talking about, you know, working class people at this point. We're talking about very affluent uh, people in Hollywood who have a certain understanding of politics and how people are supposed to behave and diversity and and religiosity and all that kind of stuff. So I wanted to get, get into all that. And Norman gave me the opportunity to do that. Man. That's man. That's some that's some deep stuff. And I remember you mentioning <laughs> a little bit about that that Trinity that you were talking about. So yeah. uh, so let me ask you this then. Um, and I definitely want to you know and now and and you said this is now this is in your current book, correct? Some of this this what you're talking about here, the current one the that's more, getting ready to come out. Yeah, like the one. So anything to do with the religious left in Lear is the one that's coming out, and then anything to do with sort of conservatism and how I want to sort of explore some of that stuff. That's the second stuff, but that's what I'll be presenting on in San Diego. Okay. Um. Yeah, actually presenting a little work there. So yeah, the first one, Religious Left, Columbia, and then I think I should, um, I'm in talks or I'm talking to my editor now, so I'm I'm thinking that we'll be good on that front as well um, for another text. I have this kind of trinity in my head, actually, not a trinity, a trilogy kind of in my head uh, when it comes to a lot of this kind of book stuff. So the conservatism stuff and kind of history of that, the Second World War, uh, that sort of stuff I'm thinking about coming up. But right now it's in November, the religious left book is coming out. Yeah, with okay. uh, Columbia. No, that's what's up, man. So, how then do you walk the path then of you know racialized you know representation? You know, folks who say, "Well, I mean, this is all mm-hmm. great, but it's like, man, these are still white men." You know, trying to speak <laughs> towards you know equity and diversity and all that stuff, man. How have you right. engaged with some of that? Well, yeah, I mean, I think Lear. So I don't really go into it a whole heck of a lot, actually, in the book. Um, I mean, there are some moments when you hear of people say on Good Times or the Jeffersons kind of having issues with Norman. Um, You know, Norman thinking that he can kind of, I mean, to be kind of upfront and kind of blatant about it, he can kind of like write what black people are supposed to be like, you know, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think he had, he had, I mean, he's admitted to a certain extent that he's, he thinks that he can kind of understand other lifestyles, other life ways, like other experiences, just because I think he thinks he's, you know, certainly, you know, he's a Jewish individual. He's been exposed to his own forms of persecution and discrimination. I think in some capacity, he kind of brings that with him. And I think that in some ways that's gotten maybe a little bit of trouble. Um, I mean, I think the sort of dynamite stuff that we might want to talk about, that's kind of recapitulating some unhelpful sort of tendencies and characteristics that we might want to forget about, you know, in some capacity. Um, I think John Amos was pretty uncomfortable with a lot of the things that 
what happened at table reads or what Norman wanted to say or not want to say. Um, we don't we haven't really heard a whole heck of a lot sort of about that. But that's what's so fascinating and that Lear thinks that he can speak to all of that stuff. And in some capacity, that's not too far removed from academia, you know, to a certain extent, hmm. is that each one has their own formula for figuring out what diversity is, you know, whether that's in a department or whether that's in hiring practices or whatever else. So Lear has, you know, being a good Hollywood person, has his own understanding of what's, what diversity is supposed to look like. And so he actually has this sketch in his, in his variety show where he basically has, and these were the names of the characters, an angry black, an angry woman, an angry Hispanic, an angry native person. Uh, and then the white person didn't really get acknowledged, interestingly enough, just like, and I'm just angry. Like that was the punchline kind of, uh, to sort of ridicule white sort of working class stuff to a certain extent. Okay. Um, so yeah, I think, so what I sort of focus on when it comes to race and ethnicity, it's, it's less sort of where you're going and more to do with how have poor white working people kind of been ridiculed and made fun of for a very long time. And to what extent has that resurrected itself in our moment, in our time? Yeah. You know, you have all these hillbill, el you know, these elegies, you have all this stuff on the working class, blah, 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 all these think pieces. You go back to the 70s, these books and articles were written 50, 60 years ago. Like we've known about a lot of this. So if I want to emphasize anything, you know, maybe I could have done a little bit more when it comes to, you know, race or ethnicity. I mean, to me, I just was the other side has been kind of so good at breaking people like Archie off of democratic voting and practices and getting them to flip to go from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. And that took place through race and a whole number of other things. But what I'm kind of trying to suggest is our times are so convoluted and challenging because we've decided not to listen to someone like Archie Bunker. We decided to laugh at someone like Archie Bunker. Now, obviously, he was saying a lot of things that are horrific and still are horrific. But at the same time, you look at literature of the period. This is when the working class begins to die. This is when jobs begin to be outsourced to places around the world. This is when neoliberalism to, begins to take off. This is when people begin to get left behind in some capacity. Now, I'm not saying it only applies to, say, white working class people, but I do, you know, I've been in those instances where the working class comes up and the quick response is, well, what about, you know, people of color? Now, I mean, that's fine and we do have to attend to that. But at the same time, I do think that there's been a kind of unwillingness to kind of listen to that voice because you have that relative and the family that you don't want to talk to who's conservative, who says these things or those things. To me, the fact that we're still dealing with these questions of kind of working class this or that means that we've never really fully understood anything from the 70s up to the present. Um, so if anything, I'm kind of pushing us a little bit in that capacity to ask, you know, Archie's bottom line was also being influenced. You know, he was hearing things, you know, from various conservative strategists who were saying, you know, you're going to your job's going to be taken over by someone of color. So you better hate them to a certain extent. So he had to learn a lot of that, but his his bottom line was also shrinking, just like any number of people who were referred to at the time as quote unquote middle Americans. I actually have a wonder I have a wonderful material that kind of gets into the sort of who are these people and where'd they come from and what's middle America all about and all this kind of stuff. So to me, um, there is a lot to be said still, like everything that you're talking about, and you know, I could have maybe done more to sort of push that. 
if anything, I'm just kind of bringing a little bit more attention to something that's kind of been forgotten and something that's kind of been pushed under the rug, you know, for obvious reasons, per se, you know, for in, in some sense. But at the same time, I think we need to attend to that a little bit more because our time is nothing if not defined by, you know, upset white people. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, of all sorts. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think, you know, there's there was some reckoning with that, you know, with 2016 and. You know, you yeah. would just look at just the colors on the map, right? I mean, like who voted mm-hmm. where and what was what. I mean, just even here in Chicago, just literally right outside the the city limits. You know, it just goes goes from blue to red. So, mm. um, I'm curious. Then, you know, with that in mind, and and you know, we got the the, the new election coming up here in 2020, yeah. man. I mean, what what are your some of your thoughts, man? You've been in this, and you've been you know wrestling with some of these things, and you know, you're looking towards this next book and and whatnot, mm-hmm. man. I mean, you know. Is, is, you know, is there good, you know, is it good, is, is, is Trump going to get, you know, reelected, you know, four more years? Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and part of what I've been saying, too, is like, you know, just because you get rid of Trump, people are like, oh, we got to, you know, uh, uh, you know, get him out there, mm-hmm. get him out the White House and everything. I said, right. But the ideology and worldviews, you know, around this aren't aren't going anywhere. So, I mean, yeah, you can get rid of Trump. You know, you can even um, what is it? Uh, what do they keep trying impeach him? Right. You know, but yeah, yeah. it that's I don't I don't I don't necessarily think that's the answer. But I'm curious, like what what do you what, what are your some of your thoughts on this? You know, this this big election. A lot of people are calling it the election of, of a lifetime. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I I was just thinking about this. So I'm just going to go here first. Did you happen to hear Eddie Glaude the other day? Well, well, the last I heard of him, well, last I heard of this was the the thing he talked about on. Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That this was, is us. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that. Uh, you know, to your point about you know, is he cause or product? He's a product. He's he's a reflection of a nation that's kind of eating itself from the inside. You know, a nation that is addicted to rubbernecking, that is addicted to social media, that is addicted to narcissism, any number of things. And this is kind of the critical theory part, I guess, coming in. Uh, But to me, I think Eddie was, you know, Professor Glad, I think he was exactly right. I mean, I think Baldwin gives us a vocabulary today that, you know, few others are able to. And I know that he's kind of been cherry picked in various capacities, but not to make it too big, but I think there is a reckoning that needs to happen that, you know, Eddie talks about, um, you know, when it comes to this idea of those communities who have had, had to pay more to keep the myth of, of innocence going. I think that is kind of petering out. It's kind of sputtering. I don't know if it's going to kick back into gear. I think it's kind of sputtering at the moment. I also think that despite the fact that Trump isn't necessarily cause but effect, I think going or combating that is going to take a much different approach, you know, compared to things in the past. Can you imagine debating him over policy? It's kind of hard <laughs> to say. I, right, exactly. So to me, I think it's going to have to be waged differently. If there are too many on the left running, not on like 68 and 72, where the party basically implodes, by the way, and I think mm-hmm. we have to be careful. I don't mean to speak out of school here, but I do think we have to be careful because the other day, Trump was really, really good at kind of saying, you know, all you people out there, the Democrats have now become the party of the squad. People Mm. don't really, Mm. you know, that's clever. Yes. That is really, really clever. And I love all of this kind of stuff. (laughs) But 
if we're going to do that, we're going to create these things like squads. And I know it's hipster and it's fun and it's memes and it's social media and it's hashtags. But guess who swims at that type of stuff? Donald Trump does. So if you continue to operate on that terrain, you are basically giving him what he wants. So in some capacity, it's kind of like an approach from a James Bond movie. I think it was um, Skyfall, where he's going up against this bad guy who basically has his finger on the pulse of everything around the world globally. Economies, presidencies, he brags about how he can topple this economy with the touch of a button. So what James does to combat the bad guy is to basically go off the grid, meaning he can't be like he goes to his parents estate in rural Scotland someplace like his castles family's castle yeah way out in the middle of nowhere and the idea is that you leave these breadcrumbs so that the guy can get there I think in some capacity you kind of have to wage not war per se but you have to mobilize outside of that terrain because otherwise you are just giving in to everything that he wants Twitter is nothing if not cultural rubbernecking at its worst (laughs) I mean I I yes, sir. You know, That's... was <laughs> I was bullied for my first time on social media. Oh wow! Um, you know, at a conference, and you know that's something else we can talk about at another time. Oh my! Um, but I mean, I think entering into that is detrimental. So part of it is you have to separate these things out. You can use the tools of social media and whatnot, but just realize that he, the tabloids are his mud. He rolls around in it. The Apprentice created the idea of this type of celebrity. So we have to, we have, to have a sense of kind of where the power mm. comes from mm. of this person and be able to combat it on that level. Now, I realize that we're not really talking policy. You know, I want to be talking more about whatever this new Green Deal is or whatever to a certain extent. I think Democrat, you know, liberals are trying to figure out what their platform is going to be in the 21st century. You know, what is it? And right, it's kind of been, it's kind of been in, uh, what, tatters since the party kind of imploded in the 72 Democratic Convention, I want to say, when they ran pigs out into the parks (laughs) to run for this and that. I mean, Part of it is that you want to be sarcastic, you want to be satirical, but you don't actually want to do the work. Like, do the work. Don't just watch Don, John Oliver or, you know, when John Stewart was on. Don't just watch that and think you're doing something political. Actually, like, do the work. Yeah. Because that's what conservatives have done ever since Reagan. And you know what? And this is this is this kind of hits at home, I think. The tendency, at least in my experience of those on the sort of proverbial left, however complex or you know, monolithic, has been to mostly to complain, you know, to say, well, they're doing this, they're doing that. If we look at something like Make America Great Again, that is a nothing but a recycled tagline that is almost 50 years old. Yeah, yeah. That made someone like Reagan possible. So if there is, if it's on anyone to figure things out, it's on liberal progressive individuals who haven't been able to come up with anything better than something recycled that was used almost 50 years ago. Mm. So to me, that's where we need to go. You know, if that still works, then the problem is not with them. It's on you all to a certain extent. And I think, you know, there's a moment of accountability. There's a moment of kind of self-reflection that has to happen. You know, I know we like to kind of, oh boy, um, sort of celebrate the creation of African-American studies, native studies, brown studies, all these sorts of things. But the receding into the ivory tower kind of left a lot of things unsaid and undone. Mm. 
to a certain extent. I yeah. celebrate it. I'm thankful for it. But then you just continue to perpetually pat your back for something like that for a good half century. And then you wonder why things are different or you wonder why something like all, oh, you know, make America great again works. Or you wonder why you, you, you use a word like rise to describe conservative Protestantism, which has been around for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You, no one just knew where to look. You know, you were just looking to the New York Times review of books. You weren't looking to, you know, these other lists of evangelical book publishers, but now people are a little bit different. So to me, it's kind of a moment of, wow, um, not unlike, not necessarily what happens to happen in academia, but at least in, because the two to me are intimately related as far as how each one kind of understands the prophetic. You know, I have this line, something like, what is, what does Cornell West say that, what is it, that justice is what love looks like in public or something? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. Um, you know, you're speaking truth to power. I think those on the right understand that it's power. You can speak truth all you want, but if you don't have the power to back it up, then it's going to be lost. The prophets were unpopular for a reason. And translating the prophetic into the pragmatic is, I think, something that liberal progressives haven't really figured out to do yet. And they're still trying, sort of floundering around a little bit. I mean, I think, like we said early on, kind of, no one would disagree with the biblical text speaking about the migrant or the immigrant, no one. But you can't expect the American people to pick that up. It's not as if we're all in one gigantic seminar and we have everything that we need in front of us and we're all gonna make the best decisions. You have to make the case. And I don't think liberal progressive individuals have done that. And the literature says that, that's just not me per se, that's work on on liberalism in American democracy, that's a transition from a focus on on class to culture. You know, we forget that the March on Washington was about jobs and unemployment and poverty in some sense. We forget those things. Hmm. So to me, it's a moment of who are we ultimately? And does someone like Mayor Pete kind of speak to this or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or the DNC? How are they going to react? So, I mean, part of it is a moment of looking inside and asking, you know, what are we willing what are we living to give up? You know, if you're about the prophetic, the prophetic, there are some consequences that come with the prophetic. You can't just speak the prophetic and expect to go home. You can't just Ooh. speak the prophetic and expect to just like everything go back to normal. Ooh. The prophetic is the prophetic for a reason because it has great power and ability to bring down powers and principalities to speak in a language that I know resonates with you. So to me, it's both attend to your own house and also realize that not everything is self-evident like that you'd like to think mm-hmm. and you have to do a little bit work when it comes to the art of persuasion and to me something like social justice is a really good idea obviously we're on board it's something that we support but it's something that has to be argued it has to be something defended especially since especially since we live in this age where well why should you pay for something that you don't actually use I don't know if you've, that's one of the most corrosive things that conservative people have leveraged against Democrats in recent times. Yeah. Libraries. You know, they've been really smart. They go after the money. They talk about people's taxes. They talk about how the money's going to this rapist, to this drug dealer. So then how on earth are you supposed to, can you assume that the stranger's going to be welcomed when all you're hearing is the danger of these individuals? So you have to really not fire with fire or, 
an eye for an eye because then we all go blind kind of a thing. But you just got to get a little bit smarter. You got to get a little bit more practical and you have to stop complaining about the gerrymandering and actually start doing something and creating an alternative that has the potential and power to defeat something like Make America Great Again, which is simply a recycled brand. It's a recycled pitch. This past election was nothing. I wrote something on Gerald Kushner when he ran the election. They only yeah. campaigned in places where they could get a return on investment. And they actually use those words. It's not an election. It's a transaction. Not to say that liberal progressives have to do that, but just the lofty no, you. aspirational intent of those of the prophetic need to be kind of contextualized a little bit and translated into a language that a broader populace and audience is going to understand. And I think that's kind of where the Democratic Party is, is trying to find its voice. Mm. Ooh, if, brother. If I could be so bold. <laughs> no, I I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I think it, what you're summing up there and just in liberals in general or just any progressive or anyone, you know, that doesn't that, you know, wants to see, quote unquote, change or social change. I mean, I think that they're <laughs> trying to figure out that voice um, in this. Let me ask this last question. And then we, I know we got to wrap up. I know time is nigh and all that good stuff. But I, and I have so many more, man. I mean, I, I got a course right now that I'm teaching. Um, an upper division on you know family friends in the mediated age and so we're oh, we're wow. this this next week we're about to get in week three we're about to get into you know facebook and just quote unquote you know well, not mm. quote unquote but hashtag fake news and just kind of we're you know mm -hmm. we're skirting on some stuff on our dorno we're looking at some stuff from um nice. uh what's his name um oh boy oh dang it now i'm just i'm blanking on his name uh yeah. oh boy who's amusing ourselves to death um that's some of that oh, stuff oh yeah um, um yeah i know who, neil post yeah there you go there you go there you go yeah. so i so, I mean, so the future, man, we got there's yeah. there's a lot at stake, right? They're saying within the next decade and stuff and some crazy stuff, you know, could happen. But obviously, you know, we were if you looked at back to the future, we should have flying cars and floating hoverboards <laughs> right now. Right now. Right. So um, what do you think, man? What do you think? You think, you know, the armed conflict? is is a possibility you know, some people say you know the second amendment yeah. is you know we got you know these these militias we white nationalism yep. man just what are, what yep. are some of your final thoughts on on that particular you know as we as we march into you know the third decade of the 21st century well this is going to be an unexpected response but i'm hoping that uh you'll like it i'm sort of old enough to have been raised on something like terminator 2 the movie come on I am nervous, if anything I'm nervous about, obviously the election stuff and more and more things are automated, um, AI, all these sorts of things. If I'm, if I'm kind of worried about anything, it's kind of what's happening, it's kind of what's happening with sort of analytics and how it's kind of infecting everything. And I write and think a lot about professional sports Maybe not write as much as I'd like to, but I do want to do more. I've written about fantasy football, origins of fantasy football, and the kind of corrosive kind of logic of fantasy sports, which, you know, to me, um, you know, you're if you're a sports fan, you're basically watching sports almost die in front of your eyes, uh, whether it's baseball or basketball, maybe not so much football, but I'm kind of, I'm a little bit of um, afraid or a little concerned about how big data is kind of being applied to different sectors and different places of our public life. Mm -hmm. um, there's an episode of um, 
what is it, numbers or some police procedural where there's actual plot point about what if we used an predictive analytics to determine who gets money federally in America, which is basically predicting human potential, which is basically kind of saying, okay, well, if this is a poor rundown area, this person has no chance whatsoever, so that person's not getting any money. Yeah. So the idea is that it's pretty. I mean, we haven't gotten to that point, but the but the suggested point of the of the episode is kind of well taken. So you know, when I see ads where Bob Dylan is talking to a talking computer, or I you know I'm a critical theorist enough to kind of get worried about um, you know these ads for you know helps doctors and firefighters and police officers and military people talk more and more and more, but you just don't realize the underside of a lot of that. You know, the underside of the Enlightenment you know continues to live with us. And, you know, one of the things that I would kind of be provocative about is to sort of make a connection from fantasy sports, predictive analytics and the concentration camps, because the Ooh. camps were nothing but 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 objectifying people with numbers. You know, if we think back to something like, you know, I, th I use this example sometimes too, like X-Men, you have Professor Xavier and you have Magneto, you know, Xavier likes people. He's a fan of humanity. Magneto, not so much because he grew up in the camps and he had to watch his mom be abused. He had to figure out how to survive. Um, so to me, it's the same. It's the same challenges and problems and concepts and Adorno and all of them we're kind of writing about in the teens, 20s and 30s. I don't think we've really I mean, if I just answer your question, you know, that's where I would go, yeah. um, whether it's the kind of. The fact that Adorno had to come over here to really understand fascism, the fact that it really wasn't as simple as a person, as a leader, that you can kind of weave it through different things with movie scores, sitcoms, uh, pop songs. I mean, the wonderful stuff. I don't know if, you know, the stuff that he's, uh, he, he has on why popular music is popular, you know, because it's somewhat dulling of the senses. It kind of lulls you into some false sense of kind of security. Oh, I think I've heard that before. I don't necessarily have to think much about it. So to me, it's that constant kind of threat of quantification of data, of predictive kind of in the term is analytics so that in sport, like things are disappearing. People aren't stealing bases anymore. People aren't hitting and running anymore. People aren't sacrificing anymore. Uh, basketball, you don't have a mid-range game anymore. You're basically shooting three-point shots and dunks. And it's really because of the same logic or the same kind of discourse. Houston Rockets are almost enslaved to this kind of idea. And the people I listen to, they, they use words like cult, which I find really interesting. The guy who does the Yankee wow. broadcast, he says, yeah, these analytics guys, they are slaves to the numbers. It's almost wow. like a cult. And so I, and so I wanna do something in the future maybe, you know, on sort of sports talk as a window into American life and society. I think it's a really interesting one. So to me, I would, you know, if that T2 was about going back in time and destroying that chip, you know, I would say to myself, you know, if I could, I would go back and maybe make sure that Twitter never got invented or, um, you know, something like that. So to me, I, um, I don't know where we're going when it comes to data and when it comes to numbers and when it comes to those big, big kind of things, just because I see it in sport, maybe less in society, but sport is nothing if not a reflection of society. Um, so I like to kind of make that point. And so that's what I would kind of, you know, Trump and the elections. And that's all that's certainly who knows where we're going. And, you know, 2050, the demographic, you know, statistics and who knows what's actually yeah. going to happen or not. 
Uh, but to me, I'm, I guess, a fuddy-duddy enough to kind of say that it's the same sorts of things in Adorno and then we're concerned about. You know, it's kind of mass group behavior and the conditions within which they're successful on behalf of social justice or on behalf of white nationalism. You know, just depends. But if I were to say, answer the question, I would say I would, I'm, a little, I'm a little nervous about a lot of that. Hmm. Man, brother. Woo! You, we have we have covered some ground, man. This has been yes, we have. this has been very enlightening. I, I love this conversation, and absolutely, we'll we'll have to get you back on um, again. Um, where can folks find you, man? Maybe somebody's listening right now. They're like, man, we have a tenure track position right now, nine months, <laughs> right. man. We'll start you at seventy five k. Where can folks get you, man? Well, thank you very much for the sort of gracious platform, and yeah. So I guess you can go to my website which is just BenjiRolski.com. You can also um, hit me up on Twitter if you'd like. I also have a Facebook account. And then if you're interested in the book in particular, you can get a lot of this stuff through my website. Uh, but then you can also just go to Columbia's website as well and take a look at the book. It's up for pre-order. It's you know Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all sort of retailers that you could imagine. Um, so yeah, basically my website, um, I think I have a page up on mama's website as well, but you can typically just, um, yeah, my website, rise and fall, of the religious left coming out with Columbia on November 12th. Uh, the review copies start probably going out next month. I've been emailing the publicist. So we're all on that. Um, and that's where you can find me. That's what's up. And again, as always, for those of you listening, I'll put all these links in the show notes on whitehodgepodcast.com. Benji. Thank you so much for coming on today and having this discussion. Um, for those of you who are listening, the book is The Rise and Fall of the Religious Left, Politics, Television, and Popular Culture in the 1970s and Beyond. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Dan. I've had a wonderful time, and I truly value each and every moment I get to speak with you. 